Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. That's from a uh, movie from back when people actually knew what Academy Award winning movies are, right? Now you don't know anymore. Uh, Oh, that won an Academy Award. What movie was that? Nobody's seen it. Chariots of Fire, though, that's a little newer than the clip I used a couple of weeks ago. It's still a classic from 1981. If you don't know that movie, maybe you weren't alive or even dreamed of in 1981. It tells the story of a guy by the name of Eric Little. He, Eric was a faithful Scottish Christian athlete. The clip you just saw was the rendition of of his famous gold medal run in the 1924 Paris Olympics. Little was a sprinter. However, he refused to run in the heats for the 100 meter because those heats were held on a Sunday. Now, sadly, we don't even flinch today when things are planned on Sundays. In a lot of ways, I think Sundays have become more popular for sports than, than Saturdays. But not for Little. Little had a conviction uh, that he held deeply. And he was willing to give up the opportunity to win an Olympic gold medal because of that conviction. I wonder how many of us would be willing to give up such an opportunity over what today seems like so, so small a, a conviction. You know, I'm reminded of a particular fast food restaurant today that literally leaves billions of dollars on the table because of a simple decision to be closed on Sunday. A real simple conviction that many people mock and make fun of. Instead, Little competed in the 400 meters because that was a race that was actually held on a weekday. And nobody believed that Little would be competitive in the 400-meter race. However, he ended up winning Olympic gold medal in the 400-meter, even though he runs such, I mean, that, when he throws his head back, I mean, that's literally how he ran. So he doesn't match the, the pattern of today's runners, but Little was fast in his day. He is most, of course, remembered as a runner, but his greatest impact was actually not on the track at all. You can hear him saying in the clip, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. What happened a little after he won the gold medal in 1924? He returned to China in 1925, and while he was in China, he served as a missionary teacher. On one occasion, he was asked if he ever regretted his decision to leave behind the fame and glory of athletics, and he responded, it's natural for a chap to, to think over all that sometimes, but I'm glad I'm, I'm at the work I'm engaged in now. A fellow's life counts for far more at this than the other. Talking about his work as a missionary, rather his, his uh, time as a runner. What happened to Little, he would eventually be arrested and detained by the Japanese during World War II Remained at an internment camp until his death in 1945, just five months before the camp was liberated by American forces. You can't help but look at a life like Little's and recognize that that he had profound faith. And part of that faith is, is learning to trust God's will even when it's inconvenient, even when it's painful, even when the outcomes are uncertain. Little said, if you commit yourself... To the love of Christ, 
then that is how you run a straight race. Somehow when he said that, I don't think he was talking about running around a track. This morning I want us to turn our attention to what at first glance appears to be more just of a, of a travel journey, a, a travel log, a, a list of trip details. But if we'll dig into those details just a little bit, we'll actually find that there's some profound lessons that are at work here in Acts chapter 1. Uh, verse or Acts chapter 21 beginning in verse 1. If you've got your place, I would invite you to stand with me as we look at Acts chapter 21. I'll read the first 16 verses. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes and there from Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on a journey, went on our journey, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on to board the ship, and they returned home. Then we had finished, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we were greeted by the brothers and stayed with them for a day. And on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we'd entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. And then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And after these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason the, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Father, I thank you for a trip, a journey, a journey that was filled with pressure to follow or not to follow, to pursue you or to turn back. We understand today we face pressure of many kinds. May we seek your face when we feel the pressure of obedience. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. When you read this text, you, you really can't help but think that, that Paul is on a, a one-way trip to Jerusalem. Most of the time we think about one-way trips, they, they make us exceedingly nervous. We know we're going to go somewhere, but how in the world are we ever going to get back? And so we've read through Acts, the first 21 chapters, and, and Paul now has brought this last journey to a, an epic close. He has spent years on the road. I think it's safe to say he's been on the road so long, he probably doesn't even have a clear sense of where home is, right? Right? I mean, he's been on the road. Where is home? Where do you go? Where, where do you live? Where do you plant roots? Paul's a missionary. Doesn't really have roots, does he? He might even say that home is, is wherever Christ wants him at any given moment. 
And every step along the way, as we read in these verses, Paul is encountering friends, people who love him, people who care for him, people who want the best for him, and they are doing their dead-level best to try to dissuade him from continuing on the journey. Everywhere he stops, people are saying, you don't need to go, Paul. You don't need to continue the journey. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. It's a one-way trip, Paul. You don't need to do this. In verse 3, he meets disciples in Tyre, and they are pleading with him not to go. In verse 8, Paul hooked up with Philip, one of the first deacons. And a prophet named Agabus Agabus gave a a prophecy about the sufferings that he was going to experience. In verse 12, it even reveals that Luke is trying to dissuade Paul from going forward because he changes to we. If you catch that, when the book of Acts talks about we, that means that Luke is including himself in the conversation. And here, here we are trying to dissuade him. We are trying to convince him. We are trying to, to make him change his mind. All of this points to a tremendous amount of pressure on Paul. People that love him, people that care for him, people who want the best for him are all challenging him to not go forward. You imagine Well, I know God wants me to go, but all these people who love me and care for me and want for my best are begging me not to go. Well, I know what God wants for my life, but all these people are trying to convince me otherwise. In Paul's heart, he knows what he's supposed to do, but everyone around him is trying to talk him out of it. You know, it's nowhere near as serious, but Eric Little faced the very same pressure when it came down to the 100 meter. Eric had a strong conviction. I can't do this on Sunday. That's the Lord's day. I can't, I can't do this race on Sunday. And everyone's saying, Eric, you've worked your whole life to get to this place to where you can compete on this, this stage, the greatest of stages, and you're going to lay that down? All because of this little conviction? You see, in his heart, little believed that honoring God on the Christian Sabbath was the only right answer. It's the only, it's the only answer. It's not like it was, well, I could do this, or I could do that, or I could do this. For little, it was like, no, there's no other option. I can't do this on a Sunday, even though all people around him were trying to convince him otherwise. It finally came to a head in Acts chapter 21, verse 13. It says, Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Enough already, he says. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So the friends, all his colleagues, all his companions, they stopped trying to change his mind. And verse 14 concludes, Thy will be done. The Lord's will be done. Have you ever noticed how that statement can be used with both, both uh, frustration and conviction? Ever, ever, I mean, right there, it seems that it means both, right? People are frustrated. Well, the Lord's will be done. And it's also with conviction. Well, the Lord's will be done. Either way, it seems that it's appropriate here. But we understand that Paul had some character traits that helped him deal with this pressure that was being applied to him. The, one of the things we understand about Paul is, is that Paul refused to be deterred from God's revealed will. What is God's revealed will? It's the stuff that we know. It's the stuff in the Bible that you can read. That, that It's those thus saith the Lord type things where there's no question. There's no doubt. Should you do this? Well, God said you should do this. So there's no doubt that God has made these things clear. Where for, for Paul, in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, Jesus has already said some things about Paul. He said in verse 16 for a verse nine, of chapter 9, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul has already had this spoken about him by the Lord Jesus Christ that he is going to suffer greatly 
for the name of Jesus. This is not like a bait and switch for Paul. It's not like Paul was promised prosperity and wealth and fame only to have the rug jerked out from under him, right? It's not like he said, well, Jesus said I wouldn't suffer and that I'd be a famous preacher and that I'd have all the things that I want and I'd never struggle or have any problems whatsoever. From the very get-go, he knew that his ministry was going to be one that was hallmarked by struggle, that would be hallmarked by suffering. This is known information. This is revealed to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has already tasted some of this suffering. So it wasn't any surprise what he was about to, to face. You know, there's certain things about our own Christian life that are true because God has told us they would be this way. It's not a question. We don't have to sweat the things we know. Even when the pressure of doing contrary is intensified, we don't have to worry because of the things that we know to be true. We don't have to, to stress those things. Those things are, are things that God has already made clear to us. It is evident in his word. It is simply a matter of do we obey or disobey. Another trait of Paul is that he was not a man pleaser. If you read the New Testament, being a pleaser of men is not a, it's not a positive character trait. Being a man pleaser means that you're more worried about keeping everybody around you happy than being obedient to Jesus. And while that may make for peace in your workplace or peace in your classroom or, or even peace in your home, well, it doesn't make you necessarily obedient to Jesus. And, and here again, it's not that Paul doesn't love his friends. But understand this, Paul recognizes that at the end of the day, he doesn't answer to his friends. He doesn't answer to these people who care about him and who love him. That's not who he answers to. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? He says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, sometimes we miss God's best for us because we're really busy trying to keep everyone around us happy. We're really busy trying to make sure that we don't ruffle the feathers, that we don't, uh, we don't upset the apple cart or whatever metaphor you want to use there. We're really busy doing those things, and by doing that, we're, we're keeping everybody around us happy, but we're ignoring what God wants for us. We're ignoring God's best for us. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? I think we could even apply that to our friends and associates as well. What, was, what does it gain us if we're, if we're friends with everybody? Everybody loves us. Everybody's happy. Everybody knows that we please the people around us, but we ignore what God wants for us. What have we actually gained? You see, we can try to please everyone and miss the main one that we should be striving to please. So how do we face these pressures of trying to follow God, but trying to deal with the pressure of people pushing us and shoving us in different directions. How do we deal with the pressure of trying to figure out God's plan in the midst of perhaps truly challenging circumstances? There's a few practical reminders that I think might be helpful. The first one is this. Seek good advisors. Seek godly advisors. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22 says this. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. It's important that we have advisors. Now, I don't mean you need to have a, a board that you answer to. This is my advisory board. I consult them with, with every decision that I need to make. I'm not talking about that. 
It's important that we have people in our lives, people that we trust, people that, that we care about, people who, who not only have our best in mind, but they're also sensitive to the things of God. You see, sometimes we allow our advisors to end up kind of being spiritual. Yes, men, they tell us what we want to hear, not what we need to hear. And it's easy to listen to people who are constantly telling us the things we want to hear, isn't it? You go to somebody and you ask a question, they say, oh, you're exactly right. <laughs> I want to talk to you some more. Right? I want to hear what you've got to say. Oh, you're exactly right. Well, I want to hear that again. And hearing people who constantly tell us that we're right about everything, that, that's good for our ego, but it may be terrible for our soul. It's important for us to make sure that our friends are actually in tune with the things of God. I think back to Job's friends. You see, Job had encountered a truly catastrophic situation, as you, as you know. And he had three friends who were absolutely terrible, right? I mean, Job's friends were horrifying. They were almost as bad as his wife. There's a reason God didn't kill, you know, didn't allow her to be killed. And that's because she was awful, right? I mean, Job was probably thinking, well, she should have been the first to go. <laughs> he was awful. His friends were only slightly better. The counsel they gave was completely miserable because they didn't understand the things of God. They didn't understand what God was doing. They didn't have any concept that God was allowing suffering in Job's life so that God would be glorified through Job's suffering. They thought God was somehow punishing Job for, for some sort of sin or some sort of iniquity, and they completely missed the point of the suffering. And their counsel actually gets Job closer to sin than Job losing everything. And that's how terrible those friends were. It's important for us to have friends and advisors who not only love us and care for us, but also understand the things of God. Secondly, we need to spend time with God consistently. I'm afraid that many of us allow our devotional life to look like our relationship with our dentists, right? I don't, uh, I don't love the dentist. It's no secret. Um, but when do we go to the dentist? I mean, how many of us just go to the dentist like, oh, it's a, it's a Monday. I feel like going to the dentist today, right? We don't do that. I mean, when do we go to the dentist? When there's a problem or when there's that obligatory cleaning that's coming up, right? I mean, nobody goes to the dentist for anything else. I mean, that's why we go to the dentist. I've never met anyone other than the dentist who celebrates going to the dentist. If I knew somebody that enjoyed and celebrated going to the dentist, I probably couldn't be friends with them, Right? We should absolutely make sure that our relationship with God is different from that. That we are spending time with the Lord when the wheels come off or when the toothache starts, to continue the previous analogy. But we need to make sure we're spending time with God beyond that as well. Daily with the Lord in prayer. Daily with His Word. Because here's the thing, you can't know what God wants if you're not communing with Him in the ways that He, had, he has given to us to commune with Him. You can't know. You can't, be, you can't claim to understand the things of God if you're not actually spending time looking at the things of God, spending time in His Word, spending time with His people, spending time in prayer, spending time doing those things that God has given to us to be able to clearly and effectively communicate His will and His plan for us. Thirdly, we need to understand this. This is hard. God's will for you may not be what you want. God's will for you may not be what you want. You remember how Jesus prayed in the garden before he was crucified? He prayed, he said, Father, let this cup pass from me. That's a, 
That's a shocking prayer coming from the lips of Jesus if you just stop right there. Let this cup pass from me. If you just dissect what Jesus is saying here, what's he saying? I'm not looking forward to the cross. The crucifixion is going to be difficult. We, we sometimes imagine Jesus as like, as like some sort of superhero that, that came to the cross and, and, and gladly stretched his arms out and gladly took the nails. Folks, he was fully human. That cross was brutal. It hurt him. It was painful. It was terrifying in his humanity. So, of course, the Lord Jesus said, Father, let this cup pass from me. But what's he say next? Not my will, but your will. Not what I want, but what you want. And his humanity wasn't thrilled about the suffering he had to endure, but he did did it anyway. God may not want the same thing for you that you want. That relationship in your life may not be in your best interest. That career change or promotion that you're looking for may not be what God wants you to do. That's so anti-American, right? The promotion comes along, and what do you do with the promotion? Well, you take the promotion. What if God says, you know, I don't want you to take the promotion. I want you to grow here longer. I want you to be content in this position longer. I want you to be satisfied with this level of money longer. Lord, that doesn't even make sense. But that may be what God wants. That business decision that you've been wrestling over, it may not be the thing that God wants for you at this time, and that's okay, it doesn't have to be. If you resign yourself to the fact that God knows what is ultimately best for you, then you can make the hard decision in the short run, knowing in the long run it makes more sense. I once heard of a little girl who wrote a thank you note for a gift that she had received. The note said this, Thank you for your gift. I have always wanted a journal but not very much. (laughs) Lastly, if you know what God wants, then do it. Right? I mean, that's pretty simple. If you know what God wants, then, then do it. It doesn't do us much good to know what God wants if we're not willing to do what he has said. James 4, verse 17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do, and fails to do it, for him is is sin. And so if you've got confirmation that God is leading you in a particular direction, you are sure that this is what God is asking you to do, and you get to that position, you say, you know what, I just just don't know that I can go down that pathway. Well, for you, that's sin. You know what God wants, and you don't do it. For you, that is sin. History would look a lot different if people respond to God's will differently. What if Little had won his race on Sunday. He might have won. There's a good chance he was going to win if he had ran the 100 on Sunday. But at what cost? I'm reminded of the pastor who called in sick on Sunday. He decided to go play golf instead. Teed up the first hole, took a swing, ball sailed down the fairway, landed on the green and rolled gently in the hole. The pastor said, hole in one! But there was nobody he could tell. What happens if we know what God wants us to do and we choose to do differently? As I read this text, though, I think there's particular application for those of us as individuals 
We want to pursue God. We want to see his will worked out in our lives. We want to be obedient to him. But I also believe there's particular application for us regarding our relationship with the people that we love. I guess if we were going to have an alternative title for this sermon, it would probably be this, Mamas Don't Let Your Babies Grow Up to Be Missionaries. <laughs> Apologies in advance if I've just created a Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings earworm for you this Mother's Day. You know the song, Willie and Waylon lamenting the cowboy way, right? You know, you don't go be a cowboy. You don't want to be a cowboy. There's so many better options for your sons than that cowboy life. And for Willie and Waylon, there's only two things. Let them be doctors and lawyers and such. I always want to know what the and such was. So many better options than being the cowboy. So many better choices in life than, than chasing, than, than, goodness gracious, pulling a calf out of the back of a heifer. I mean, my goodness. If your children are asking you where baby cows come from today, I apologize in advance. <laughs> You know, we might say the same thing about that missionary life as well. So many better options. So many better choices for a child than to, than to pursue the, the life of a, of a missionary. I mean, little died doing it. He was, in, he was in China, and the Japanese captured him, put him in a concentration camp where he died, and he died five months before he was liberated. He could have been a famous runner. He could have been a famous Olympian. His, his face could have been on Wheaties if they had Wheaties. I don't know. He could have had all the endorsements. I mean, Nike could have, could have given him a pair of shoes, and, and he could have been everything. But instead, he went to be a missionary, and he died doing it. It's interesting. Paul was surrounded by people who loved him and wanted the very best for him. Wasn't his mom or his daddy. He's very silent about his family. You never hear Paul talk about his mom or his dad. But all these people who love Paul and cared for Paul, wanted the best for him. No one would look at these people and say they were trying to undermine Paul. But every single one of them did their dead-level best to try to stop him from going to Jerusalem. Every single one of them. Paul, go anywhere. Go back to Ephesus. Set up shop in Athens. Start a school for missionaries in Antioch. But Jerusalem, of all places, here's the point. The people that loved Paul the most were the ones who were trying to convince him to go in a direction contrary to the plan that God laid out for his life. So here's the point on this Mother's Day. A simple question for mom and really any of us who have any say-so in the lives of these younger humans that we care so deeply about. When it comes to God's plan for the life of my child, am I serving as a guide or am I serving as an obstacle? What's the difference? After church today, we're heading over to McKaysville for Mother's Day, and it means we get to take a trip through the Ocoee River Gorge. I love driving through there. And we'll probably see some adventure-seeking mamas today. Getting to go rafting today with their kids. I love whitewater rafting. I won't lie, though, the thought of going down the Ocoee by myself is downright, downright frightening. Couldn't imagine doing that by myself. What do I want if I go whitewater rafting down the Ocoee River? I want somebody in my boat that we call what? I want a guide. And I want the best guide, right? I want the guide that's not going to let me fall out and, and, and possibly die. That's what I'm looking for, my river guide. 
And if you've ever been whitewater rafting, you know a, a good guide makes all the difference in your experience. You see, a guide knows the risks. A guide knows the best path. A good guide knows the skill of his team, knows the skill set of those people who are, who are paddling. And the guide's goal is pretty simple. Keep you safely on course with the end goal in mind. I want to get this boat full of people to the end of the river and make sure they had a good time doing it. That's, what I, that's, that's the guide's goal. He's not trying to stop you, is he? But he is trying to equip you. He's not trying to prevent you from getting down the river, but he is trying to make sure you get down the river safely and having a good time. Listen to me. Our kids today need good guides. They need people whose goal it is not to keep them out of the river, but to help them know where the danger is and to help them arrive at the end stronger from the journey. I find it interesting. Paul didn't seem to have any guides, did he? Nobody was, was helping him. Nobody was coaching him. Nobody was encouraging him. Nobody was equipping him. Everywhere he turned, there were people saying, Paul, don't go. Paul, stop. Paul, it's going to hurt. Paul, there's going to be suffering. Paul, there's going to be trials. Paul never had anybody who was equipping him. He had a lot of obstacles. You know what the biggest difference between a guide and an obstacle is? A guide says, avoid the rock. An obstacle says, avoid the river. Sometimes we function as obstacles when it comes to our kids and our grandkids pursuing God's plan for their lives. We love them. We want the best for them. We don't want them to suffer. I mean, on my worst day, I don't want my kids to suffer. So we protect them. We redirect them. We mold them into the image that we want for them. Sometimes without worrying what God wants for them. We push them rather than lead them. Or sometimes we simply stand in their way. You may never voice this out loud. But in your heart, you might acknowledge even this. If your kid came back from camp this summer, or if your kid finished up a random day at vacation Bible school, or if your kid called you after a Bible study at their campus ministry, and they said these words, I believe God is calling me to be a missionary. Your first reaction might not be to celebrate God's work in their life, but to temper with that enthusiasm. Well, let's pray through that. To cool that zeal. Well, let's think about that. Let's finish our education. Let's do all these things. Let's, let's, let's make sure all these boxes are checked before we go down that road. We redirect their focus, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But let's be honest. Sometimes, allowing our kids, or really anybody that we love, to follow God's will for their life, sometimes it's harder on those left behind than it is for those who are pursuing God's plan. Right? And that, that missionary call, I mean, they're going to be excited. They're going to go to some foreign country, and they're going to learn new languages, and they're going to be around new people and new cultures and new experiences, and they're going to have the, the excitement of leading people to Christ. In that, in that moment, it's hard to even imagine what's left at home. But for those who are left behind, it can be a struggle. You know, you see that with Paul. He was resigned to do what God said, no matter the cost. But it was those that were not called to that trial 
who perhaps struggled the most. You know, I look at our church staff here. I'm, I'm blown away by the faithfulness of these folks. We talked this week during one of our staff prayer times about just some of the challenges of being called into vocational ministry. Because here's the reality. They don't always get to be home at Christmas. They don't get to sit next to their mothers at church on Mother's Day. And it's not the same thing as traveling to Jerusalem to face a phony criminal trial. That, you know, it's not the same. But it is a cost that can easily be overlooked. And for many, it is a cost that goes into the calculus. Will I be a guide or will I be an obstacle? Here's the thing. Anybody that wants to follow Christ, we're going to face these pressures. The pressure to be obedient, the pressure to follow Jesus, or the pressure to listen to others. We need to make sure we surround ourselves with people who not only love us, but love Christ more. And here's the thing. We're living in a world today. In just a couple weeks, we're going to have Graduate Recognition Sunday, and we're about to send these precious 18-year-olds out into the world to conquer the world. And the pressure on these folks is going to be intense. And the next class, and the next class, and the next class, it's only, become, it's only going to become more and more intense. But as God's people, as godly moms and dads, do we want to guide them and lead them? Or do we want to stop them? I think I know what Christ wants from us. As we work to lead the next generation, as we work to be godly mothers and dads, I think God is calling us not to be obstacles, but to be guides. Not to look them in the eye and say, stay out of the river, but to say, hey, let's walk and avoid the rocks. If we'll keep our eyes on God's will, not everybody else's will, not our own will, I think we can all agree we're all better off for it. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for Paul's commitment to obedience, even in light of the challenge and the difficulties that he was guaranteed to face. There were no surprises here. It wasn't a shock to Paul to know of the suffering that he would face. But he was willing, he was eager, he was resigned to follow. And so, Lord, I pray that we might recognize those traits in Paul's life that made it where he could face these incredible challenges with courage and conviction. I pray that we would have people in our life who love us, but who love Jesus more than us and are willing to not just tell us what we want to hear, but tell us what God wants us to hear. And I pray, Father, that we would have a steadfast commitment to obedience to you. In a world where it's becoming way easier just to be disobedient, we understand what you want. May we be faithful to do it. And God, today as it's Mother's Day, we have to think as parents and grandparents about just what this means as we parent and grandparent and, and love our children God, may we be faithful to lead them not in what we want. It's easy to say what I want for my child. It's easy to say what I want, my goals are for my child. But the way I love my kids best is not by imposing my will and my desire and my want to's, but that I lead them to follow your will and your desire and your want to. 
God, I believe firmly that I can be a successful father and that we can be successful parents if we will lead our children to radically and totally surrender themselves to the will of God. For some, that may mean they're called to be missionaries in a foreign field. They may be called to be pastors in difficult churches. For some, they may be called to vocationally be teachers in school classrooms or to serve in our armed forces. The, 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 the ways that you call and move and work in people's lives is, is vast and, ver- and varied. But God, help us at the end of the day to make sure that as we lead our children, that we lead them firmly in the will of, in, in your will, in God's will, and not in our will. We want to pray like Jesus. Not what we want, but what you want. May we be guides and not obstacles. Father, again, we thank you for your word and thank you for Paul's steadfast commitment to pursue you at whatever cost. May we go and do likewise. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.